0: Welcome back again to David O. Gray Show, Voicing Truth and Reason. Some time ago, I put together a video taking each one of the claims that Pope Francis is a Freemason, and then um, demonstrating how how each of those claims are just irrefutably silly, and not something that an adult with a functioning brain should believe. Based upon the evidence presented, Pope Francis was never an initiated Freemason. Now. Let's do the same work with the claim being floated around now that Pope Benedict XVI was a liberal modernist, heretic, apostate. I'm going to mention, bring up each one of those claims, and then we're going to determine whether it is truth or fiction. And you can be the judge about who is actually voicing truth and reason, me or them. Let's get into it. Hovering over the skies of a post-Christian society, we have spotted a man with a donut in one hand and rosary beads in another. Child, I'm about to whoop Satan's behind. He is boldly proclaiming truth and reason like no rigid Catholic ever has before. The David L. Gray Show begins now. No, I have a you know I have some audio podcasts that you can subscribe to, including this show. Uh, also, my commentary on the readings for all the Sundays and holy days, holidays of obligation. That's called the liturgical sense of the readings at Mass, where I'm explaining the readings at Mass in context with the liturgy, the liturgy which is forming and guiding and shaping us how to live our faith in the world. It's a very popular series. You know, I get happy each time. Maybe you guys, you know, you, you share it. I see you share it, or you send me a comment telling me about telling me uh, telling me about how much it's helping you, helping your faith journey. Hey, I have a new audio podcast and video series called The Catholic Catechism in 39 Talks by David O'Gray And which I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking the teachings of the Catholic Church and connecting them to the liturgy, which again, Christ has given us to form us and shape us. And as I always say, a theology that does not connect to the liturgy is a theology not worth our time as Catholics because it doesn't help us live out what we know to be true. So check out my audio podcast, The Catholic Catechism in 39 Talks with David O'Gray. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast or, or watch the video series. It's, it's very well put together and you can find it at saintdominicsmedia.com Just register, watch it for free. In fact, here is talk number two of 39. God comes to meet man. Check it out. In the life of the church, the Holy mass is where we find the beauty of God's desire of revealing himself. And Man coming to meet God throughout the liturgy. We bear witness to this exchange by which man and God build relationship. Think about how the Holy Mass begins. It begins with a procession to the sanctuary. That is a movement of man towards God. And then the priest begins the Mass in nomine patris, spiritu, sanctu. Therefore, in calling upon the name of God, the Mass begins in relationship. The Mass is then divided into four movements. The first is man confessing his sorrow and need for God. Then in the second movement, we find God confessing His love for His people through the readings of the Old and New Testaments. And then the third movement, we find Christ Jesus, the full revelation of the Father coming to dwell with man, as we read about in the historical sense in the Gospels, but takes on new meaning through the communion rites When the real body and blood of Jesus comes to dwell in the body and blood of his people. When we take all of him into all of us. And then the fourth movement is like the acts of the apostles. Now that we have received him, we are called to go out and share him with the world. And In this way, the revelation of God remains ever-present and ever-living in the world. The Holy Mass is where it is all at, and you should never separate revelation from it, because the liturgy really does communicate the fullness of divine revelation. Now, having talked about man's capacity for God, In God's desire to fill that capacity with revelation of Himself. In chapter three of the Catechism Catholic Church, we will talk about man's response to God. claim is that he presided over the most rapid decline of the faith in the history of the Catholic Church. I respond to that, saying that according to a 2010 comprehensive demographic study by the Pew Research Center from 1910 to 2010, Catholics went from 291 million to 1.1 billion. So Pope Francis pontificate during Uh, from 2005 to um, 2013, he actually participated in this increase of the baptized Catholic population. And according to La Observator Romano, in 2019, the worldwide Catholic population exceeded 1.34 billion, which continued to be about 17.7 of the world's population. So this marked an increase of 16 million Catholics, a 1.12 increase compared to 2018, while the world's population grew only by 1.8%. So the Catholic population is outpacing the world, and that is due to conversion. So what this myth against against Benedict XVI is positing is Western elitism. It's saying that because Catholicism is dying in Europe alone, It therefore means that it's dying everywhere because Catholicism is only real in the West. We do know that when it comes to seminaries, people in the pews, priests being ordained, churches opening rather than than closing, yes, Catholicism in, in much of the West is on life support. And every pope since Vatican II has presided over that decline. And um, and, and it's largely due, really, to the West just embracing the works of Satan, embracing secularism, and um, every Pope, including Francis today, is every Pope since Vatican II is um, is going to preside over that decline until it bottoms out. But again, I think Catholicism in the West probably should die out. <laughs> like every seed until it can grow again. In fact, as, as soon as Catholicism reaches a point where it beca- can, Catholicism in the West can reach a point where it can become a mission territory for serious Catholics and serious Catholic missionaries, the better off the whole vine will be. So the rapid decline argument is not even true. Again, is espousing Western elitism and it isn't a strike against Benedict XVI being a liberal, modernist, heretic apostate. But I will say that it is a strike against the spirit of Vatican II. The second claim is that Benedict wore a suit at Vatican II rather than dressed like a priest. So, so Father Ratzinger, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, and Pope Benedict did not always dress in clerical garbs. yes. I'm certain he did not sleep in his mitre. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it, it'd be difficult to sleep in. He probably didn't take his crozier with him to the bathroom all the time. He also had bowel movements and did not always walk on water. I don't even know how Radzinger or Benedict Sixteenth not always wearing how him wearing just a nice conservative and <laughs> enclosed jacket suit with a tie Therefore, it means that he's some sort of liberal modernist heretic apostate. If you can explain that math, let me know in the comments below. The next claim is that Pope Benedict is a, a liberal apostate modernist heretic because he prayed with Muslims. So, yeah, Pope's John Paul II, Benedict XVI for Francis have all made visits to Istanbul's Blue Mosque. Uh, apparently, Pope Benedict added his stop on his tour in 2006 um, because back in September of 2006, remember he had wrote the, the Regensburg speech where he famously said, show me just what Muhammad brought that was new. And there you'll find things only evil and inhumane, such as his command to spread by sword, the faith he preached. So this speech had a ruffle some feathers. In the Islamic world. So during his November trip to Turkey, he prayed together with Orthodox Christians. Also, he has signed a common declaration with them. He supported the Turkish membership into the EU. And again, he rejected the concept of killing God's name. He denounced terrorism, ideas which targeted Islam at that time. And towards the end of his visit with Istanbul's Grand Mufti Mustafa Kariji, um, in a blue mosque, it lasts about 20 minutes, and the two did stand by side for about, you know, a minute in what appeared to be a prayer. The Pope kept his arms crossed at his waist. His lips could be seen moving slightly. The Muslim, cleric touched his face in the traditional Islamic gesture to end the prayer. The Pope nodded in his, to his exchanged gifts after Benedict left. After he left, the Pope was heard by reporters telling the Mufti, thank you for this moment of prayer. As compared to his predecessors' visit, Benedict XVI did not kiss the Quran as John Paul II did. The only strike against Benedict XVI here is that he, you know, his silent prayer did not invoke anything distinctly Christian in prayer posture or with a sign of the cross. the in, but nothing here warrants the claim that he is some sort of liberal, modernist, heretic, apostate. And and when. I would say um, Muslim imams visit the Vatican. They also should not get called liberal modernist heretics apostate by their own religion just because they don't throw down a prayer rug and shout Alu Akbar in the middle of the 16th chapel. What John Paul II did was atrocious kissing that demonic book. But what Benedict did was not any sign that he was a liberal modernist apostate heretic. He was just a pope visiting a mosque of a religion that two months earlier he had called evil. The next claim is that Pope Francis prayed with demon worshippers. All right. So there's a couple issues with this one. First is this image from 2008 during a visit to um, Australia, where Pope Benedict XVI was on a harbor boat with some Aboriginal people. And people call this image evidence of some sort of pagan initiation ritual or blessing with an aboriginal witch doctor. We do not know who this man is or, or what he's doing. The picture definitely looks bad, but without context, there's nothing to prove here to have been as seen for some sort of liberal monist heretic apostate. The second issue is even less convincing on um, October 27, 2011, in Assisi, Italy, Benedict XVI gave space to commemorate John Paul II's World Day of Prayer for Peace that took place 25 years earlier. Thus included um, at this World Day of Peace and Prayer were Archbishop Norvin Zarkhan of the Armenian Apostolic Church, Anglican Archbishop Rowan Williams of Canterbury, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople, Benedict XVI, of course, Rabbi David Rosen, representing the Chief Rabbinate of Israel, and Wandi Ababola, representing the traditional religion of Nigeria's Yoruba people, Sharvista Goswami, a Hindu delegate, and Yasun, the head of South Korea's Buddhist. Young Order. So, I would say unlike the 1986 edition, um, the 2011 event only featured um, time for individual prayer for reflection. Then Cardinal, back then in 1986, Cardinal Ratzinger didn't even attend an event and disapproved the members of different faiths praying together. Um, uh, so, this 25-year anniversary edition did not even involve any communal prayer. That's made Three hundred participants were only given time to pray silently to each other after lunch. So, again, I, I will say that um, there's really no evidence here, um, just because of the you know of the 25 year anniversary being, recommit- being commemorated by Benedict XVI, in which he had cut off the idea of communal prayer. There's not then for it's not evidence on the record here to suggest that he's some sort of liberal, monist, heretic, apostate. In fact, it will look like the Opposite that, he's he is getting rid of those images and signs and um, works of uh, false ecumenism. The next one here is that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth kissed a boy on lips. So this one claims that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was a liberal modest, heretic apostate because there are some pictures of him kissing kids, maybe even kissing kids, not just on the cheek but on the lips. I don't know what to say here. I think I think popes kiss kids. <laughs> I think they do. I think popes kiss kids and I don't think that means you're a heretic apostate liberal modernist. I don't I (laughs) So the next one here is that Pope Benedict is a modern liberal heretic modernist apostate because he praised Telhidhar Chardin in a sermon in 2009. So Telhidhar Chardin was a Jesuit of questionable theology who died in 1995. So questionable was his theology that the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith in 1962 condemn several of his um, Shardin's works based upon their alleged ambiguity and doctrinal errors. But because Benedict XVI said in a 2009 homily that he quoted Shardin saying, this is also a great vision of Teledy Chardin. In the end, we will achieve a true cosmic liturgy where the cosmos become a living host. And so because he brings him up, brings up his name, he therefore tried to resurrect Chardin. But also in that speech, Benedict commented on the traditional African religions of African religions and Asian religions and Latin, the traditional Latin American religions, saying they differ greatly from one another in many details, but they also share common elements. They all know that God is this one God, that God is a singular noun, that gods are not the God, that God is this God. So was he also trying there to give approval to pagan religions? I think it really demonstrates really just a low intellectual capacity to isolate one one person's whole life or a Pope's entire homily down to five minutes or one sentence and exclude from it any context whatsoever. You know, this is not the space to explain to adults how Pope Benedict XVI here took the time in his homily to contemplate the meaning of um, St. Paul's words, Almighty and Merciful. In his letter to the Romans uh, by using the prime importance of God's um, in, in one's own life, in society, in the world, and how he merged, you know, what Paul was saying with what he wrote in, his, in this in encyclical, God is love. But if Sardin has something worthwhile in, in to say in this context, it does not then therefore mean that Pope Benedict is some sort of liberal modernist apostate heretic because he included that one worthwhile thing that Chardin had to say. That's a a logical conclusion, a leap that has no merit or validity whatsoever. Then we come to this group of claims concerning things that Pope Benedict had written either as Pope or as Cardinal or as priest. So the claim here, the first one, is that Pope Benedict XVI has said that St. Luke was exaggerating. Um, about the resurrection. He has said this in his book, Jesus of Nazareth on page 269, which isn't true. Once you actually read (laughs) on page 269, you know, you got to read a little bit before (laughs) he gets to that paragraph, he gets to that sentence. And so what he's saying here, he's talking about Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. And he's saying that um, here he says on page two six nine he says most exegetes take the view that Luke is exaggerating here in his apologetic zeal. So what's going on here is that Jesus had resurrected. This was a post theophany um, event where Jesus appeared, and the um, and the apostles saw Jesus. And it says they were they were startled and they thought they were seeing a ghost. And so, again, he's saying, well, most exegesis are, are, I think Luke is exaggerating here when he's saying ghost. Right. So what Benedict does here, once you continue to read, he says, yeah, most exegesis just, just take the view that he's exaggerating his, his zeal. But then what he goes to do, he, he dialogues to this group of exegesis, which are really just people who are using the historical critical method to find. Um, to not look at this through the lens of faith, but really just to poke holes in it through some sort of historical context that is devoid of faith and from the tradition, which it was received. So he dialogues with this group and, and he, what he does, he, he arrives at the conclusion that what's going on here in his dialogue with Jesus and the apostles was merely was dialectic. That Luke was not exaggerating, but Jesus is using this this conversation, this this them saying, "Oh, it was a ghost." To um, uh, he, he he appears to be a ghost to say that Jesus, what he's doing here, was demonstrating that he truly is flesh and bone. That Luke is not exaggerating. That this is all true, and that it was dialectic. It was a conversation. It was a teaching moment between Jesus and the apostles. They saw this theophany. Oh, it's a ghost. Jesus says, no, I'm flesh and bone. So here he Benedict. Um, this is really um, um, uh, 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 a moment to compliment Benedict. And this effort here he uses. He takes this moment here to prove how silly the historical critical method is. And then the second one here is that Pope Benedict XVI denied the jurisdictional government of papal primacy in his book Principles of Catholic Theology on pages 197 to 199 and then 217. I really don't understand what jurisdictional government of papal primacy means in context of this chapter here that is about the um what is that? about the the chapter itself is about the general orientation with regard to the ecumenical disputes about the formal principles of faith so all that benedict is doing in this section really just really just offering a summary to the issue itself like why are orthodox why are catholics why are protestants divided that's that's the summary that he's giving he he's he's laying out the landscape these are the issues these are the tensions and then the conclusion that he arrives at is that he writes in the end on 217 he says that this will be resolved. This can be resolved. Um, he says the section outcome um, through agape love, <laughs> through agape love, all Christian, these Christian groups of Orthodox Protestants and Catholics will come back together again through agape love. And then he's, and then he, he builds upon that. And he says that it must be Eucharistic agape is through the Eucharist, love of the Eucharist, eucharistic agape, through which Christians will be one again. So, again, he, he he doesn't say that in his book. The claim against him about why he's some sort of apostate, and so the next claim is that Pope Benedict XVI alluded to that infants um need not uh, don't need baptism as soon as possible. That he that the ba- infants the claims that Benedict XVI alluded. Just saying that infants do not need baptism as soon as possible. This is post supposedly from a book, um, an interview that he did with Peter Seawold, um, pages 401 to 402. I, I can't find a book on my shelf. I, I know I, I I did have it at one point in time because I read it. And I do recall that section um, in that interview. Um, the question was about, you know, salvation, baptism being necessary for salvation. And Pope Benedict XVI, he says that that's a settled issue. <laughs> you know, baptism is necessary for salvation. But he's, he, he goes on, does he does talk about, um, what about aborted children, um, since they cannot be baptized? And he said, you know, he talks about how, well, that's the most important thing that we have to work out as theologians. And so he believed that these children who are aborted will simply enjoy a state of natural blessedness in which they will be happy. And he, he would call that place limbo. So this is an area of theology, you know, where theologians can can work in. This is not a, the whole limbo thing is not settled what happens to aborted children is not necessarily settled, you know, there's room here for theologians to argue. And that's what he's presenting here. But again, no evidence that um, first the claim that he's said children don't need to be baptized, that's not true. That's not he's he was saying in an interview and and moreover, him moving on to talk about the abortion issue is not evidence that he's some sort of apostate, modernist, heretic, liberal. Again, this is a lie. And the last one here is that Pope Benedict is some sort of modernist, heretic, liberal apostate because his mentor at the at one time Carl Rahner said that he did not believe. Benedict did not believe in hell. Ratzinger did not believe in hell. Listen. I'm. I would say I am a little shocked that people who dislike Benedict Sixteenth would quote Carl Reiner. That not only shocks me, but tickles me. <laughs> Nevertheless, I would only encourage those who want to use hearsay as evidence to pick up um, what they should do. Rather than using hearsay, they should pick up this book here um, by Joseph Ratzinger called Eschatology death in eternal life. And let's turn to page 215 in the section here called hell purgatory heaven. All right. And let's just read from the first paragraph here on 215 rather than dealing with the hearsay of Rahner. It says no quibbling helps here The idea of eternal damnation, which had taken ever clearer clearer shape in the Judaism of the century before or two before Christ, has a firm place in the teachings of Jesus, as well as in the apostolic writings. Dogmatics stand on solid ground when it speaks of the existence of hell and of the eternity of his punishments. So that's a refutation of the hearsay for Ronner. Clearly, Ratzinger does believe in hell. Not only does he believe in hell, he completely refused the idea that there's some sort of reasonable hope that all will be saved. Let's turn to page 218, where he says In such piety, nothing of the dreadful reality of hell is denied. Hell is so real. That it reaches right into the existence of the saints. Hope can take it on only if one shares in the sufferings, suffering of hell's night by the side of the one who came to transform our night by his suffering. Here, hope does not emerge from the neutral logic of a system from rendering humanity innocuous. Instead, it derives from the surrender of all claims to innocence and to reality's surrender, which takes place by the cross of the redeemer. Such hope cannot, however, be self-willed assertion. It must place its petition into the hands of his Lord and leave it there. The doctrine of everlasting punishment preserves its real content. Again, The doctrine of everlasting punishment preserves its real content. The idea of mercy, which has accompanied it in one form or another throughout its long history, must not become a theory. Rather, it is a prayer of suffering, hopeful faith. So, again, not only (laughs) does he not deny that hell is real as the claim posits but he does teach in his book about the four last things that hell is real it is everlasting and not only is it everlasting but the idea of some sort of reasonable hope that all will be saved is silly so the common characteristic of these people saying that pope benedict 16 was some sort of liberal monist heretic apostate because he wrote this or didn't write that or did this or didn't do that at some point in time, if they always take what he said or did or didn't do or didn't write out of context. I would typically say that these people who do this are not very smart, but rather at this time I would say that they're about all smartest as your typical politician who makes a career out of taking their opponent out of context so that they can seek a win rather than find the truth. But that's my commentary on a subject at hand. Let me know what you think in the comments below. Thanks for watching. And until then, and until next time, blessings and shalom to you and to yours.